Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Boldly going where no science show has gone before. The Naked Scientists. Hello, welcome to a brand new series of The Naked Scientists. We're all back together again, the old team. It is our physics guru and kitchen scientist, Dave Ansel. Hello, Dave. Hi, Chris. Also, our archaeologist in residence and the maker of Question of the Week. She's with us this week to do the whole show, Diana O'Carroll. Hello, Diana. Hello. And I'm Chris Smith. Now, in this week's news, we're going to be hearing how scientists have discovered a new class of antibody that can neutralise HIV, and that's a breakthrough that the discoverers say could bring us a step closer to finding a vaccine. Also, farmers do a critical job. We couldn't eat without them, of course, but where did they actually come from in the first place? And we're talking about winding the clock back several thousand years. And a new form of Velcro, but this one is made from steel, and the inventors say that it could be used to stitch bits of car together, and we'll find out how in just a minute. Diana. Thanks, Chris, and also this week, it's our science question and answer show. We've got an inbox bulging with your questions, including can you run faster on the moon than you could on Earth? Does talking to plants actually affect their growth? And intriguingly, there's some evidence that it can make a difference. And does shaving or cutting hair affect how quickly and how thickly it grows back? The answers to all of those are on the way. But if you've got a question you'd like to, us to look into for you, then send them in. We'll give the details of how to get in touch in just a second. Thanks, Diana. And in this week's Kitchen of the Week, uh, sorry, this week's Kitchen Science, I'll be weighing up the workings of buoyancy and explaining how it can even make concrete float. If you want to have a go at my experiment, all you need is a tumbler of water and some reasonably accurate weighing scales, good to within a couple of grams. And, of course, yourself. Thank you, Dave. So uh, while you're pretending to be Archimedes with Dave's experiment, then you can also take a trip down to the centre for the cell because Mira's been down there this week to hear about the opening. If you said to me, Helen, let's go and look at a science lab, I'd think, oh, I'd rather not, that sounds a bit boring. But this isn't like that. It's full of games, it's full of actual human organs that you can get your nose right up to. And I think it just brings it to life. I'm not sure if I want my nose in a human organ, but we'll find out surely what that's all about. Mira has been down to the centre for the cell which opened in London this week. This is The Naked Scientist, it's our science phone-in, and if you have any science questions for us, you can send them in. Our email address is chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.net. A story which has definitely hogged the headlines all around the world this week is the announcement by scientists down in California in the US. This is um, Dennis Burton and his colleagues, who are based at the Scripps Institute, that they've discovered some new classes of antibodies that might be able to neutralise HIV. 
Why this is important is that we think that in order to protect the something like 3 million people who are catching HIV every single year around the world at the moment, we need to give them some kind of vaccine that will make them make antibodies that can turn off HIV the minute it comes into the body. And these are what these neutralising antibodies do. The problem is that in order to neutralise HIV, you have to switch off a structure in the virus called its spike protein, which is how it gets itself inside its target cells. It attacks the immune system, cells that have a marker on their surface called CD4. The problem is that the virus is quite cunning because it keeps the molecular Velcro that it uses to do that trick well hidden just until the moment that it needs to get into a cell. It very quickly uses and deploys these proteins on its surface and then it hides them again. So they never really get shown to the immune system. So the immune system never really gets the opportunity to make an antibody that could do this. But researchers wondered whether someone who'd been infected with HIV for a very long time could in fact make these antibodies, but obviously once the virus is in the body, it's too late. That doesn't mean that the antibodies couldn't be used if they were present to start with and therefore prevent someone getting infected in the first place. So what this group uh, have done is they recruited something like 1,800 people. They got blood samples from people right around the world, and that's important because HIV comes in many different shapes and sizes. There are lots of different strains of it, so you want to check many different forms of HIV and they took those blood samples and they looked in there for antibodies that could block HIV and in the first patient they began to study they actually found some they've called them PG9 another one's been called PG16 and what these antibodies do is lock on to a structure on the side of that HIV spike protein which is called the VS2 VS3 domain and what that does is it's part of the process by which the virus latches on to cells to get inside them and what the researchers say is that this is not so hidden as the other structures that uh, are used in the process of cell invasion it might be possible to turn that into a vaccine and as a result therefore we'd have a new target to aim at so they're in the process of looking for more and more of these targets and these antibodies as it goes. Is it important to target the spikes um, because the spike is important for the way the virus is working or, and therefore it can't evolve very quickly because if it changes significantly then it won't work? Exactly. Because that's the way in which the virus gets inside cells, if it changed that at all, it would no longer be able to get inside its target cell. So it has to keep or conserve the structure of some structure in order to have the same tropism, the same ability to attack these cells. So if it needs to keep it the same, it's therefore vulnerable, and the scientists are saying that could be the Achilles heel. So we need to find structures on that protein that we can show to the immune system to make them make antibodies. This is encouraging because it shows, given that this person they got these antibodies from already had HIV, that people can make these antibodies, and if they've got them before they get infected, they will protect them. If it isn't um, exposed very often, is it going to be hard, is it hard for the immune system to catch it at the moment when it's being exposed? Exactly right. And so That's researchers fine. say that the way around the problem is to find these proteins, these targets, these antibodies lock onto, and then find a way of making a stable form of them that you can lock it into the configuration that it uses when the virus is most vulnerable, inject that into a person, and it shows the immune system what it looks like so it can make these antibodies that, that throw a spanner in the infectious works and stop the virus getting in in the first place. Brilliant. Now, Velcro, or probably more 
Bethesda and the BBC hook loop fasteners are, is an incredibly useful thing. Um, they're actually inspired by a natural means of distributing um, seeds, the burrs, which catch onto sort of dogs' coats and they get work their way in and then eventually they fall out and distribute the seeds where the dogs walked off to a couple of weeks later. Is that really where the, the idea came yeah, from? Yeah, it was a Swiss scientist was actually found his dog was completely full of burrs and he was getting fed up with picking them out and he suddenly thought, ha ha, this might come in and handy. And he borrowed this. Yeah, and he borrowed this. Um, but up till now, all the Velcro um, that you see is made out of basically polymers or um, things which don't work at very high temperatures and they're pretty strong but as soon as you put them in a hot car engine or around the exhaust um, then they're going to melt and stop working very well. Um, now however a group led by Joseph Mayer at the Technical University of Munich has discovered something rather tougher. He's made steel velcro. <laughs> Good grief. Really? Yeah, he's taken 02 millimeter steel sheet and then pressed through to make little structures in it. He's got two different types. Uh, one type is basically looks like normal Velcros. They push, push lots of loops through on one side of the, Velcro, of the steel Velcro. He gets another one and he put, pushes through little spikes. They're not quite like hooks like normal Velcro, but they're kind of like wiggly spikes. And you push these wiggly spikes in between the, the hoop. Um, loops and it will stick quite nicely and you can, can you just, peel it off again and you can just peel it off again without any tools many times or um, only work once the first four or five times it does lose a bit of strength it loses maybe a, a fifth of the stre- original strength but after that then it as, as often as you like wow so what could you use it for well they're suggesting for actually sort of manufacturing cars because there's lots of things which are screwed into a car and that takes a while you need a, a tool and it takes ages to to screw in so instead you could just sort of velcro it on so maybe velcro on the lights or velcro on your exhaust system and if you need to change it quickly just sort of unzip unzip the velcro change take the exhaust out and zip puts it a whole on. new spin on sort of cut and shut cars doesn't it they wouldn't bother welding them together in future they just velcro two halves together possibly is, is this marketable when 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 can we expect to see this um this there, there is a company making the stuff i expect as with everything it'll probably be in fairly specialized uses to start with but um, there's no reason in the next few years. Or maybe even space? Um, a Velcro is used in... Conventional Velcro is used in space. They use it for, like, attaching all the tools floating around. But possibly, yeah. Well, I don't think I'd want to buy my car from where you're getting yours from, Chris. Um, anyway, also in the news this week, uh, where do all the farmers come from? Farming and cities seem very much the norm now, but in the grand scheme of things, they're actually very recent developments. Modern humans have been around for about 200,000 years, but farming has only been with us for roughly the last 10,000. And farming is really important because once you start farming a piece of land, you can actually support a much greater number of people in a smaller area than you could with most sort of hunting and gathering. Although there are some places in the world where land and sea are so abundant in food that you don't really need to farm to support lots of people. That's another story. So are you saying then that that industrialisation and big population explosion and having machines and things that we have today is down to the fact that we had farmers once? They enable people not to have to spend their life looking for food. They could do other things like science instead. Yeah, the idea is once you get a population of people sort of so compressed in a small area, um, then they start doing doing exciting things like building cities and developing technologies. But anyway, uh, this is back in the Near East, and that includes Iraq, Iran, Syria, places like that. Um, it's one place where farming is thought to have originated and later spread through Europe. And there's been something of an argument between academics 
academics as to how that spread took place and how it happened so quickly. And some people have argued that farming techniques were rather peacefully communicated through neighbouring populations and that hunter-gatherers gradually just gave up their land their lifestyle and, uh, and their language in favour of more productive ones of the farmers. But some people argue that actually the farmers were a specific group of people who outcompeted and eventually replaced the nati- native hunter-gatherers in Europe. How would you know that? Um, well, <laughs> um, archaeology tends to look at sort of signs for different cultures. So if you get one culture replacing another, um, there's usually indications like pottery um, will sort of gradually just totally you know, subsume other types of pottery. But um, another way of looking at it is DNA. And Barbara Bramanti and her team have taken mitochondrial DNA or mtDNA samples from three groups of people. So publishing in the journal Science this week, they took mtDNA from a group of 11,000-year-old hunter-gatherers, mtDNA from some of the earliest farmers from a bit later, about 7,000 years BC. And uh, what they found was that these two groups were too distinct to be related. So they then looked at how ancient hunter-gatherers might be related to modern-day Europeans, and again, the relationship was almost non-existent. So it does seem that Central Europeans are descended, at least in part, from these early farmers. And what we can draw from this is that at the end of the last Ice Age, some people developed farming and they moved most of the way across Europe, quite likely displacing the hunter-gatherers. And they think that these farmers originated in an area around modern-day Slovakia or Hungary. And uh, the researchers do say that they need to do a few more DNA studies just to be sure exactly where our farming ancestors are. Have you got any clues as to where they may have come from? Um, yeah, it could have been Slovakia or, or Hungary. Um, but why there, specifically? Because um, because they're associated with what's called LBK ceramics. Um, <laughs> and this is a, a ceramic style which seems to have originated in that area and then spread across Europe along with farming and techniques like that. I'm very glad they did come into existence, though, because we wouldn't be able to sit here making radio programmes if it wasn't for the fact that someone else was worrying about where our lunch comes from. Thank you, Diana. Now, also this week, there's a wonderful paper published in the journal PNAS, and this is by Jackie Barton, who's uh, over in Caltech, again in California. And what she's discovered and presents this week is how bacteria, and probably also humans, keep their DNA checked and and with good integrity. Now, what I mean by that is if you were to look in any one of our cells, for example, there's about two metres of DNA coiled up and that two metres of DNA contains about three billion genetic letters. If I had a book of similar magnitude, it would be about two metres tall. So if I piled up books or dictionaries or something to about the height of two metres, that would be about the same number of letters as there are letters in the genetic code. Every single one of those genetic letters in every cell is getting checked all the time because if mistakes creep into DNA, it spells disaster because the DNA is your cellular recipe book. If you make the wrong recipe, cells go off kilter, things don't work properly, they can even become cancerous. So it's critical that DNA is continuously being checked so that it remains in tip-top condition. There are various molecular machines, enzymes, that can walk along DNA checking the structure of the genetic letters and making sure they're correct and that the genes are spelled out correctly. But there are not very many of them in a cell. In fact, there's only 30 of these little machines that checks one type of DNA error. So researchers have been wondering, well, how can possibly such a small number of these little machines check such a huge amount of DNA and do it efficiently? Well, when this group of scientists began to look at these tiny machines, these enzymes, they noticed that they're very often associated with little clusters of iron and sulphur atoms. And these iron-sulphur clusters are very good at both receiving and donating electricity, 
electrons. And what they've discovered by doing some very careful experiments in bacteria, and because bacteria have analogous genes to humans, you can expect that what's going on in the bacteria is probably true for us too. What they've discovered is that these enzymes don't physically have to check every single bit of DNA. What they actually do is they work in pairs, and one will land somewhere on some DNA, another one will land some distance away, and it will inject some charge, some electrons, into the DNA, and if the DNA is healthy, it carries like an electrical wire the charge to the other protein, the other enzyme, and if that signal reaches the other enzyme, it knows that the piece of DNA nearby must be intact, must be in good condition, so it departs and goes elsewhere and checks somewhere else. If the signal doesn't get through, the enzyme painstakingly crawls along the DNA, reading it letter by letter, looking for a mistake that it can then put right, and once it finds one, of course... The signal is restored, and then it knows, ah, this bit of DNA is now fine, so I can go elsewhere. So it's like spell-checking an entire word as opposed to the individual letters. Exactly. So it's like your brain. When you scan a page, you can see a word spelled wrong, and then you can jump ahead to the bit that's wrong, but if the whole word sentence um, looks fine, then you jump to the next sentence. It's a bit like an electrician doing a continuity check in a house. You just send an electric signal around the house, and if you get a signal backed on the other side of the circuit, you know things must be okay. I guess this is looking for quite major errors in the DNA. It, it won't tell if you've got a few of the letters the wrong way round. Or... Oh, no, it will, because these enzymes are very specific for certain types of genetic error, and certain enzymes repair only certain types of error. So they can tell that a word is spelt wrong, a genetic word, that is, and so they can go in and put the letter right, and there are different enzymes that repair other kinds of spelling mistakes, and they can tell because the charge does not flow properly, it seems. Brilliant. Um, now, most, I've got a story here about conservation. Now, conservation, most conservation efforts seems to be put into species which are pretty or otherwise attractive to humans, things like pandas. But often there's no point in trying to conserve them if, the, if their ecosystem collapses. For example, there's no point in trying to stop anyone killing and, um, pandas if the bamboo they live on dies out. Uh, in simple cases like this, the result's obvious. But in most ecosystems, in what, what way each species is dependent on one another is so complicated. It's very hard to predict the knock-on effects of losing one species without using a huge, complicated computer model. And by the time you get something as complicated as real life, the computer models just get so unwieldy, they tend to fall over and not be able to cope. Uh, now, according to Stefano Alencia and his colleagues, um, Google's page rank might hold the answer to this problem. <laughs> Google is the answer to everything, isn't it? <laughs> Is there anything that Google can't do? Well, this isn't. Do you think Google just by like searching the answer of like is this is is um, is killing all the giraffes going to cause major ecological collapse in Africa? Okay, so tell us how it works. Okay, now Google's page rank is the way that Google tells out tells basically whether a page is any good. Um, basically, Google very simply Google works on the principle that if lots of other important sites are linking to your site, um, then your site is probably important too. Um, and so they rank every site by this thing called page rank, and the ones with the highest page rank for a given results for search will get on result, come back to you first. Now, Stefano has been applying this to food webs. So if um, lions, hyenas and leopards, etc., all eat a certain type of gazelle, then they will transfer some of their importance to the gazelle. And depending on how much of their diet is a gazelle, if they eat only a gazelle once every three weeks, then it won't be very much their importance. But if it's a major part of their diet, then a major then it, a lot of it will go I across. It. So you can structure your ecosystem and work out how important different aspects of it are to other bits and so on. So you can see how the energy and the, and the, and the, the density of these links are 
across the whole food web, basically. Right, yeah, and then you essentially do a search and find out which of the um, which species are going to be the most dangerous to lose. And he's done this, and using his PageRank system, it gives us the similar sort of results, the big, complicated, expensive computer models. Um, and as we know, PageRank scales to hugely complicated systems. It works for the web, so it should work for complicated, real ecological systems. Brilliant. Thank you, Dave. Well, let's keep an eye on that one. Did they say particularly if any, any animal is absolutely critical? It's not a blue bottle or something uh, unpleasant like that. Uh, they haven't put, it, they haven't put um, any major systems in yet, but yeah. It'll be interesting to see. Thank you, Dave. Well, this is The Naked Scientist. It's our science phone-in show, so if you have any science questions for us, you can send them in. Chris at thenakedscientist.com. Distilling the best science. The Naked Scientists. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith, me, Diana O'Carroll and Dave Ansell. You can also tune in to us live online from anywhere in the world. There's a link to the web stream on the front page of our website and that's at thenakedscientist.com. And we're also live in the virtual world of Second Life at the Scilands. Hello to all of you Second Lifers. Thank you, Diana. Now, have you ever wondered how many babies are getting born every day or how many solar panels it might take to power the UK? Well, one man has not only answered these questions, but he's also gone on to show us how we can work it out for ourselves. He's written a book, and it's called How Many Licks, and it's been published, and it's come out this week in the US. It comes out here in the UK very shortly, and his name is Aaron Santos, and he's a mathematician and physicist at the University of Michigan. Hello, Aaron. Hi, how are you? Very well, thank you. Uh, good to have you with us on The Naked Scientist. So first of all, before we come on to how many licks and perhaps why it's called that, tell us a bit about yourself and what do you do? Well, I'm, um, I'm a postdoctoral researcher in the chemical engineering department at the University of Michigan. And um, my, my background is in physics, which is basically where I learned to do all of these sort of problems, these sort of calculation problems. What sort of physics are you doing? I do mostly statistical physics, uh, so a lot of things with uh, nanoscale uh, systems, a lot of different self-assembly systems of nanoparticles, and a little bit of biology, but but much more just uh, regular chemistry, uh, regular straightforward chemistry. And so, what led you to come out of the the physics world and say, right, let's write a book in which we try and look at some of these complicated calculations about the world around us? Well, I was actually it was in the middle of my graduate calls when I was when I was studying for them, and there's a there's a problem that was on the calls that was basically how do you you have to calculate something that you have no idea how to calculate at first, and it's it's a general problem first originally proposed by Enrico Fermi, and I think the the problem he originally used was something like how many piano tuners are in Chicago, and this was something that his students were expected to to answer by just doing straightforward calculations. So it, it just seemed like it would be a good idea for to just put a collection of these problems into a book into a book format. And the name, how many licks? How'd that come about? Well, there was um, there was a commercial. I'm not sure if in the UK you guys get Tootsie Roll pops, but it's basically a uh, a Tootsie Roll uh, encompassed in a in a lollipop. And there was a pretty famous commercial back in the 80s. Uh, about um, there was this owl when the kid goes up and he asks the owl, you know, how many licks does it take to get to the Tootsie Roll Center of a Tootsie Pop? And the owl basically just takes a bite out of it and says three. Um, <laughs> so this this was kind of the, the real answer to that question because uh, that's, that's one of the, the things that we consider in the book is how many 
many licks would it really take if you were actually going to sit down there and do it? Well, one of the other things you've, you've been considering is, is, say, the question, you sometimes see TV adverts where they use scalability and lots of small increments of something adding up to something very big. Um, one of the examples you give in your book is how many ants could it, you would you need in order to carry a human. So talk us through that one. Yeah, so that's that's one of the simpler problems in the book. So it's it's commonly said that an ant can carry 50 times its own weight. And if that's true, how many would you need to actually pick up a human being and just kind of use it to, to walk you around? Well, if you ants come in a lot of different sizes. If you look on, I think it's Wikipedia, there's, uh, I think there's a factor of 500 between the smallest ant and the largest ant weight. I wouldn't like to guess what the factor is for humans. Probably, depending on some countries, quite big. Yeah, one, one, one would imagine... Uh, those countries probably should rename, remain nameless. Um, I think our countries, between the two of them, probably leading the way, actually. <laughs> so go on. How, how do we calculate this, then? So um, the, uh, if you look at the ants, at least the ones that are crawling around my apartment, uh, they're about 20 milligrams in mass. And if they can carry 50 times their own weight, then that means that they can each carry a gram. So a normal human being is somewhere around 65 kilograms. So if I divide 65 kilograms by one gram then you can calculate pretty simply that it's about 65,000 ants that you need to pick up one human being. But mm, do you think it's reasonable? <laughs> well, <there's, laughs> I, never, I never get into whether, uh, whether things are reasonable or not in, in the book. I mean, there's, there's a lot of things to consider. Uh, you know, first of all, how are you going to fit that many ants underneath you? You either need a lot of – you either need very large shoes or you'd need – um, you know, you need to be lying on your back, and then there's some question whether or not you can even fit that many ants. So I try, I try to avoid any uh, any pretense of reality in any of these calculations. That's not that's uh, not really what we're going for here. Now, I got sent a, an email the other day, uh, Aaron, where um, someone it, it said on there, um, if he said, uh, don't scroll down until you've read the top line, and then it said. Uh, Around the world, about 35 million people are having sex at this precise moment. They said, now scroll down. I scrolled down. They said, apart from one old timer who's currently reading his emails. Uh, so um, how, how many people are currently engaging in sexual congress right now then? How would you calculate something like that? Um, I, I, I should say before I answer this one that I, I answered a similar question in a, in a talk that I gave once and was heckled mercilessly by a woman in the crowd who was, who was convinced that um, the the percentage of time that I thought people should be having that people that I thought people were actually having sex was much too low. So you you might get a few angry calls in from this, but we won't um, judge it by your own standards, Aaron. It's all right. Okay. Okay. Um, so the, to do a problem like that, you'd want to say, all right, well, how often does a does a normal person have sex? And this clearly depends on what type of person you are. If you're a priest, that's going to be much rarer than you know if you're. Uh, in a committed relationship in your early 20s. Um, but uh, the, the number I used uh, to calculate this one was, I'd say, you know, one, once every three weeks seemed like a reasonable number. You know, you're certainly, you're certainly not going to be having sex once every day, at least, you know, not, not, not my, by my lifestyle. Um, and uh, once every, you know, once a year seems much too long. So once, once a week seemed like a good compromise. And then you say, well, all right, well, how long does a typical sexual encounter last? And, you know, then it depends on, you know, do you count foreplay? Do you count, you know, what, what counts as a sexual encounter? Um, but I thought 15 minutes seemed like a, like a reasonable amount of time for that. So that gives you... People 15... here in the studio are nodding. They think that's okay. Okay, good, good. Um, although I have, I have to say that the people that I've, uh, I've generally asked these questions to have tend to be, tended to be scientists. So I think my, my results might be a little skewed. But you guys fit that demographic, so... 
maybe maybe that's why you guys are nodding in agreement. Um, but that would be 15 minutes out of three weeks. So you could calculate that that's about 0.05% of the time. And then I've, if that's if that percentage also applies to the number of people that are having sex, then it's just 0.05% of the population, which would be about 3.3 million people. So also my my estimate was far too high. My email that I got then was was tenfold too high, probably. Um, it could be, or you know, they, it, I could have um, I could have messed up on one of the the numbers that I gave you. Um, but uh, I would I would question the email more than than. Uh, the numbers, because I at least know where those are coming from. But the point of all this is uh, that it's basically showing people how you break down a big, complicated problem, which scientists frequently encounter, into a series of small steps and make a few small assumptions in each step in order to arrive at a ballpark sort of figure. Exactly. I mean, you want to start with the things that you know how to do first. I mean, you don't you don't want to just guess at the number of people having sex because you could be way off with that. But if you start doing things that you are familiar with and then just multiplying them together, then usually you can come up with something that's pretty close. Thank you very much. We'll leave it there, Aaron. That's Aaron Santos, who's uh, at the University of Michigan. He's just published a book called How Many Licks? From protons to photons and gluons to muons, the naked scientists. Science that's fundamentally more fun. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith, me, Diana O'Carroll and Dave Ansell. And it's now time for Kitchen Science. Come on then, Dave, what are we doing? Okay, this week we've got a really, really simple kitchen science. Actually trying to answer a question which we occasionally get on the show. Um, Okay, basically what I want you to get is a set of scales which can measure within a couple of grams. So normal set of kitchen digital scales would be fine. If you don't have one of them, you can actually build a balance out of a piece of wood with um, hanging two cups off it. So if you can hang two plastic cups off a piece of wood and balance it in the middle, that works fine. Um, and then oh, I get it. So that, in other words, you, you want to be able to see if what's in one hand, one side, weighs the same as what's in the other. So the absolute number that it weighs isn't that important. Yeah. And then also all you need is a mug. Um, like me. That will, you'll be useful. <laughs> um, OK, so what we're trying to do, the question we often get asked is if you take a glass of water and then say you stick your fingers into the glass of water without touching the sides, does the glass get any heavier? So will the measurement on the scale yes. or the, the balance, will yeah. it go off kilter because, just because you've stuck your finger in the water? Just without touching the sides, without touching anything but the water, does it get any heavier? So you can do this just with get scales, put a glass of water on, stick your fingers in and see if the numbers change. What do you think at home? Fairly simple challenge for you. Glass of water or a cup of water on a set of scales or on a scale bar. Put a finger or some... I suppose you could put another object in, couldn't yeah. you? Just, but just don't touch the sides or the bottom of, yeah, the, of right. the container, what will happen to the reading on the scales or the, the balance of the scales? Will it change? Please tell us if you think you know the answer. The email address, chris at thenakedscientist.com. Now, Diana, I've got a question for you from John Kemp who says, uh, does shaving make hair grow faster? All of my life I have heard it said that shaving makes hair grow back faster and that once you start shaving, you're then committed for life. What's the answer? Well, the short answer is no. Um, We had a really good answer on the forum about this, actually, from Databit, um, who said that hair grows actually in a cone shape, so when you let it grow naturally, the end looks thinner, and therefore the hair looks thinner. But when you actually shave it, you cut it right at the base, where it's at its very thickest, and that makes it look much thicker. So once you start shaving your hair, um, the stubble will look much thicker and make it look like more is actually growing, but there isn't. It's the same. 
And uh, the other point I think also to make is that when you're cutting a, a hair that is growing already, it's got a head start because it's already an actively growing hair compared with a hair follicle that was not active because hair follicles go through various cycles of activity and inactivity. So therefore you're cutting a growing hair already, therefore it's already growing, therefore it's going to grow back quicker. That's right. You, you sort of bring all the hairs back down to the same level of growth and so it appears as if they're all sort of growing at once. Terrific. Thank you, Diana. Uh, Dave, um, Barry Rawlins says... Can you run faster on the moon? He's in Nottingham and he says, My son Joshua and I were wondering if Usain Bolt was to go sprinting on the moon. He's the guy who's this amazing athlete <laughs> from the Caribbean who seems to be able to run faster than anyone else ever thought was possible. If he was to go sprinting on the moon, but without being hindered by extra weight like spacesuits and equipment and so on, would he run faster or slower than on Earth? He says, I believe gravity is a bit weaker, but I'm not sure if that would be a benefit for locomotion or not. Um, on the moon, the gravity is about a sixth of, on, of the Earth, so you can jump much, much higher. Um, whether this helps you with running depends on the kind of running you're doing, I think. Um, if you're do, trying to sprint, um, if there's a sixth amount of gravity, then you're going to have a sixth of the amount of friction again, um, between your feet and the floor, because friction basically goes as how hard you're pushing against the floor. Um, and this means, but your mass is still the same, so you still need the same force to accelerate. So he'll be able to accelerate about the sixth of the rate as he could do normally. So in a 100-metre sprint, he's almost certainly going to be a lot slower. But if you're running a very long way, you, know, it's, you could probably get an advantage because you can take huge strides. So you can sort of... Um, you could take a huge stride and then not do anything for a couple of three or four seconds while you fly through the air. And then you can land and do a little bit of exercise, then fly through the air for a bit so you get some time to re recover in between. So I think you could probably run long distances faster, but short distances not nearly as quickly. So it would be like the laziest race ever then, wouldn't it, basically? <laughs> it depends how fast you're going. But yeah. <laughs> Dom's on the line. Hello, Dom. Hello. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. How can we help you? Um, I was wondering what limonene is and what it's used for. Brilliant. Yeah, well, limonene, it's, it's the stuff that makes oranges and lemons smell orangey and lemony. So yeah. if you take a, an orange and you scrape the peel a little bit and smell your fingers, there's a very intense orangey, citrusy smell, isn't there? Yeah. And that is the limonene. The orange peel contains huge amounts of it. It's a very big organic molecule. It's lots of carbon and hydrogen atoms stuck together in giant ring structures. And in fact, we did an experiment on the Naked Scientists a little while back. Dave did it as a kitchen science where you actually blasted some of the limonene through a candle by squeezing the peel of the fruit and you spurted the limonene into the flame. That's right, you produce sort of aerosol of limonene into the flame and limonene's really flammable and so it catches fire. But the reason that fruit makes it is because it's also quite nasty for things other than humans who haven't got fingers to peel an orange. If you try to burrow through the peel of an orange, you'd have to eat the peel and the peel doesn't taste too good. Limonene is mildly toxic and being organic and unpleasantly tasting as it is, it puts off insects and that's a way that the tree uses of keeping its fruit in good condition. Um, I, I found it also in like my shower gel. Uh, why is it in there? Sure. Well, the, the answer is rather than try and invent artificial flavours and, and colourings and things which will do the same job as a, a molecule which is already doing the job very well in nature, sometimes it's easier just to use the natural product and then you can also have a marketing benefit because you can say, hey, this is a natural product, it's got limonene in it. So rather than having to use orange-flavoured stuff, or a small molecule that smells the same, then you can just use the natural product and then you get two bangs for your buck. So what it's doing in your shampoo is contributing a nice orangey aroma um, wow. and which also, because it's fatty and oily, it will stick to your skin quite well. It won't get washed off by the water and it leaves you smelling vaguely with a faint aroma of oranges. Have you noticed that? 
Yeah, I have. Then we've got the answer right. Thank you very much, Dom. Okay. Great to have you on the show. Okay, bye. Dom in Norfolk. Dave, got a question here which I, I find intriguing. Uh, Indrek Torillo says, Hi, Naked Scientist, love your show, and actually I listen to it on the podcast. He's listening in New South Wales and Australia. This is an amazing question. He says, If light can escape from a star, why not a black hole? And the point he's making is that a black hole is a collapsed star. So all the mass of the star ends up in the black hole. So if light can come out of the star in the first place, given that there's no more mass now in the black hole when it's collapsed, what's changed that now light can't get out? That's right. Um, when you take a star and convert it into a black hole, you actually normally lose an awful lot of mass. It involves all sorts of explosions and lots of energy given off, so the black hole normally weighs an awful lot less than the original star did. But that mass is much, much closer together. That It's much more dense. Um, the force of gravity, even uh, Newtonian force of gravity, is essentially um, is proportional to the inverse square. So um, if you're twice as far away from it, the force gets four times weaker. Um, so if you if you take a star and squash all that mass very close together, then you're on a, and then you stand on the surface of it, apart from being burnt up and everything, if you stand on the surface of it, then you're going to be a lot closer to a lot more mass. So the gravity is going to be much much stronger. Then once you go into relativity and complex general relativity, then that mass can bend the bend space enough that light always gets bent round and that can never escape at all ever. So if the black hole blew up again, you took the same mass and put it back to something that was the original size of the star, so in other words the density was, was lower again, then it would start to emit light again. Yeah, then light could escape, no problem. Brilliant. Diana. Well, now it's time to join Mira Senthilingam, who's been in London this week for the opening of a new science centre that's getting young people into science in a whole new way. This week saw the launch of the Centre of the Cell, a new children-orientated science centre located in the heart of Tower Hamlets. And I'm inside the centre itself now, and it's very impressive structurally because it's basically a large orange pod that's suspended from the ceiling over a working laboratory. And with me now is the director of the project, Professor Fran Balkwell from Queen Mary University of London. So, Fran, tell me more about the Centre of the Cell. What exactly is it, and what does it hope to achieve? So Centre of the Cell is about inspiring the next generation of scientists and doctors. And it's also a unique project, not only because of its location within a working research building, but because it's actually scientists who have led the project and its content has come from over 80 of our scientists. And what, what is the content, really? So what have scientists come up with for it? The top-level message is that your body is made of millions of tiny cells. And when you're ill, your cells have gone wrong... And scientists in this building and all around the world are trying to find ways to make cells right again and make you better. And what would you say the aims of the centre are? Because it's located here in Tower Hamlets, which is not necessarily the most affluent of areas. So that's one of the primary goals of it, isn't it? Yeah, it's about raising educational social aspirations. It's about saying to the kids of Tower Hamlets, you're worth it. It's very much a local project. We've involved 8,000 local children so far in evaluating every stage of the project. But it's also got a global reach because we have our website, which has had over 10 million hits from 140 different countries. And many of the games in the pod are also available on the website. But it is... In terms of the pod itself, it's about bringing in our local young people and inspiring them about science and having a dialogue with them. And what would a stereotypical visit then involve? It's free. 
booking is made online because it's a sort of planetarium type experience. As children come in, they look down over the research laboratories and they come into the pod. Then there's an opening audiovisual sequence, which is about cells and cell biology. And then in the middle of the pod, the lighting changes and this amazing structure called the nucleus opens and inside you find games about cells and cell biologies. Now I'm just wandering around inside the centre of the cell and the pod has opened up to a variety of um, interactive games and I'm here with Esme from the Petchy Academy. Hello Esme. Hello. Are you normally interested in science at school or does, has this helped you some more? I like science but I prefer more pa- practical science and it helps me learn it so I'm, I think this is helpful. Um, it's really interesting the way it's actually in a laboratory and you can watch real scientists work. It kind of puts it into perspective. So we've heard the aims of the centre and the opinion of a student visiting it, but is it really educating visitors? Well, Fiona Hadsley-Smith is the vice-principal of the Petchy Academy. So, Fiona, what do you think about the centre? I think the most significant thing will be that it is such an interactive set of games that are going on here, and it is very, very interactive, and everything that the students have been learning in the classroom, they can actually take out of the classroom and actually use it and see it working in practice, especially when the students are seeing the scientists working downstairs. So they do realise that scientists have real jobs, and it's not just something that me as a teacher teaches in the classroom and would you say then that the games and activities here really do then match what they're doing in the classroom so they match the curriculum they certainly do match the curriculum I mean I've been looking around and it is absolutely fascinating to see that a lot of the challenges that are presented at key stage three and actually key stage four are very precisely addressed here especially modern science modern treatments of medicine looking at cancer, looking at the way in genes are inherited, looking at the way in which genetical traits are passed on from one generation to the next. And it's really fantastic to see that you're talking about to a real-life scientist who is saying the gene for deafness is passed on from one generation to the next. And although I may be teaching that in the classroom, they can actually see it working in action here, and that is absolutely brilliant. Today's launch was opened by Blue Peter presenter Helen Skelton. Hello, Helen. Hello. So, Helen, what's your opinions on the centre of the cell here? Well, I was invited to come along, and to be honest, when I walked in, I just kind of stood there and I was going, wow, this is cool. I I have to hold my hands up and be honest. If you said to me, Helen, let's go and look at a science lab, I'd think, oh, I'd rather not. That sounds a bit boring. But this isn't like that. It's full of games. It's full of actual human organs that you can get your nose right up to. And... I think it just brings it to life. And for me, science was always the boring subject at school. But this certainly isn't a boring experience. What do you think about the fact that it's hanging kind of over the labs here at St Bart's? And do you think that helps people to see what scientists do? Yeah, I definitely do. Because I think it's easy to go to a museum and you're sort of distanced from things then. But actually, what you're looking at is happening right beneath you. And sadly, everybody can relate to cancer or HIV or whatever it is. And the fact that there are people working right beneath their feet to combat those things is really quite remarkable. That was Mira Senthillingham at the launch of the Centre of the Cell in London. She was talking with BBC's Blue Peter presenter Helen Skelton and before that, Professor Fran Bulkwill of Queen Mary's University of London. Fiona Hasley-Smith, Vice Principal of the Petchy Academy in Hackney and her student Esme. Thank you, Diana. This is Chris Smith, Diana O'Carroll and Dave Ansell. It's The Naked Scientists and it's our science phone-in extravaganza. We're answering all of your science questions and, of course, doing an exciting kitchen science experiment. Uh, Dave, just remind us what the challenge is. 
Okay, basically get a mug, put it on some scales, and then put your fingers into the mug without touching the sides and see if the scales read any difference. Mug with some water in. Mugs with some water in. You could try it without the water in and see if that makes any difference. June from Braintree got in touch and said uh, she did the experiment, had a glass, put a teaspoon into it, didn't make a difference on her scales. Maybe her scales need a bit more sensitivity, I don't know. Or possibly a bigger teaspoon. Okay, well, keep trying. Let us know what you find. And if you have any science questions, chris at thenakedscientist.com is our email address. Um, Peter is in God Manchester. He's on the phone. Hello, Peter. Hello. Well, the, my question is fairly complicated, so you'll have to bear with me a little bit. Um, we start off with a refrigerator. Now, the refrigerator, actually, you get more benefits than the energy you put in, in the sense that you put a certain amount of electricity in to move heat from the hot to the cold, uh, or pump heat away from the cold areas, and you can pump significantly more heat than the energy you put in. So you, you've got a, a sort of reverse efficiency where you can move um, several times, probably, I don't know, three or four times. I don't know the exact figures. It, the energy it actually depends on the, temperature you, the, the difference in temperature which um, the fridge is working across. Yeah, so, so you, you're, you're actually moving physically more heat than the energy you're putting in. Now, given that... Can't we do the same thing in reverse and use the fact that we've created a heat differential to power a heat engine to generate the electricity back again? And now one of two things will happen. Either we'll get more electricity out than we should in the sense that uh, um, we've got an efficiency which is greater than the, the, the factor. So let, for an example, let me say, if, we've got a, if we're pumping four times as much heat then to convert the heat back to electricity, we only need 25% efficiency or better to actually win in the game. So Failing is this a way that, of making tonnes of free electricity just yeah. by running your fridge and cooling your beer down, Dave? OK, so basically you're asking if we use, a fridge can pump far more heat than the energy you put in, that's definitely true. Um, in fact, if, you, if, you, if it's pumping for a very small temperature difference, it can pump 100 times more heat than the energy you put in. Can we use, make a heat de a temperature difference with that and then use that temperature difference in order to generate electricity? We can use that temperature difference to generate electricity. We do use temperature differences to generate electricity all the time, essentially by using a heat engine, something like a car engine's a heat engine. Um, and basically they can produce high-quality electrical energy by moving heat from a hot place to a cold place. Um, but a fridge is essentially just a heat engine running backwards. Um, and again, with a normal heat engine, the amount of energy you can get out compared to the amount of heat, heat you move is to do with the difference in the two temperatures. The bigger the difference in two temperatures, the more efficient it is. Um, and so you're never, ever going to get more energy out by going around in a circle like this. Than You'd just be violating in. the laws of physics, basically, which is um, not going to happen. Yeah, there's a really, really fundamental law of physics, which essentially says you can't generate um, useful energy and, uh, from no nothing, and this would violate it, it It's an analogous question to if I had a propeller on my car as I drove along, could I connect that to some kind of generator and then power the car with the generator? It's kind of getting a free lunch, isn't it? And it just doesn't happen, energetically speaking. It's just not going to happen. Yeah, and I think actually with um, with this one, it would be far, far worse and it would work far less well than that. Peter was in God Manchester. I hope that answers your question. Thank you for joining us on The Naked Scientist. Ros got in touch from Peterborough and says, why does tea taste nicer out of china cups rather than regular mugs? And Coke, I presume they mean the 
drink beverage uh, better out of a glass than a plastic bottle. I'd say it's the placebo effect, wouldn't you? I, I think it's just because you, you automatically think it's nicer because it's in glass. Yeah, having lived sort of, well, six years on and off as a student, I think <laughs> it all starts to taste the same after a while anyway. Yeah, a, lot, a lot of how what you experience from a meal or food is to do with the, the surroundings, which is why restaurants spend so much money on having pretty um, stuff around the outside, pretty stuff in the room rather than just on the food. Right, Chris, I've got a question here from Jesse. He says, can talking to plants make them grow better? The answer is probably not, but I did a bit of poking around. In fact, we, we have covered a story on The Naked Scientist a couple of years ago by scientists, It's uh, the reference is Mi Jong Jong, who is a crop researcher, crop researcher, uh, over in South Korea and published this in the Journal of Molecular Breeding. So it's in a peer-reviewed journal, but I'm not sure how robust the science is. But what they did was to, for some reason, and they don't say why in their paper, they were playing classical music to different plants and they tried 14 different types of classical music to see what effect this would have on the plant growth. And the plants, not surprisingly, did not respond at all. So then they thought, well, perhaps it's a mixture of tones and perhaps plants are sensitive to a range or, or specific set of tones. So they then started playing sounds at specific discrete frequencies of plants and monitoring gene expression. So they would grind up a plant and see which genes have been turned off or turned on in response to a, a, the presentation of a tone over a period of time. When they played certain plants a tone at 50 hertz, a, a series of genes went down, turned off. When they played the same uh, plants, some uh, or same species of plants, some sounds at 150 hertz, 125 hertz, or 250 hertz, uh, the same genes increased their activity. And when they used the molecular machinery, the bits of genetic sequence that turn those genes on and off and link them to another gene that made the cells change colour, that's called a reporter gene, they could, by playing certain sounds at the plants, get the plants to change colour, suggesting that plants are sound sensitive. So maybe in the case of cereals, we know they have ears, so maybe they are sensitive to sounds, and therefore maybe there is some validity in saying you should talk at them I think it's more likely, though, that the CO2 that you emit in your breath when you talk to your plants is like going to have a bigger effect than, than the range of frequencies. But maybe blokes' voices being more low-frequency dominated would have a better effect than women's voices. I don't know. So Prince Charles was right, then? So maybe <laughs> Prince Charles is right, maybe. In a diver's are, mask. Are plants vibration-sensitive? Um, because when wind blows past them, they'll vibrate, and if it's windy, then they're going to want to have all sorts of, they want to want to have all sorts of different settings, and if it's not, maybe. Yeah, um, plants definitely respond to being moved around. Um, because they realise that this is bending them and they therefore need to strengthen. And so they deposit more growth-related um, products and they turn on growth-related genes in the other side of the stem to the one in which they are bending. So they, they strengthen the side that they're bending away from. So in other words, it makes them stiffer on that side. And that's why, um, why trees can, can look a little bit bent but still stand up despite, say, a, an onshore breeze or something. So that's why. Thank you, Diana. Good question. Um, Dave, um, got a question here actually from Stephanie. Interesting question who says, as I understand it, the nuclear fusion of stars stops gravity from compressing them until they can't be compressed anymore. So what stops planets being compressed by gravity like stars? Why, why don't planets effectively have fusion in, inside them? Well, yeah, um, stars, it's not actually the fusion which is um, holding the stars up directly. It's actually their temperature. If you've got a gas, the hotter it, uh, if you've got a gas and the hotter it is, the more pressure it will exert, the harder it will push out. So stars um, are basically supported, they're, they're basically made out of very, very hot gas, plasma. They're supported by their temperature. So the hotter, the, the, if the star gets hotter, it will expand. If the star cools down, it will shrink. Um, a planet is 
is, isn't doesn't have to be supported by that. Planets are made out of solid lumps of things. They're basically supported by the repulsion between atoms and molecules in the same way as a table is supported or you're supported. Um, so they're not big enough that they need temperature to be able to support them and basically just... Um, molecules and atoms are strong enough. Because uh, planets like Jupiter are just around the threshold of what we call brown dwarfs, aren't they? They're failed stars. They're not quite big enough to squeeze themselves enough to trigger fusion to actually get going. Yeah, small stars can also be supported just by it's actually it's it's by this uh, molecular strength, basically. Thank you, Dave. Bringing the facts to bear, the Naked Scientists. You're listening to The Naked Scientists, and now Dave has got the result of Kitchen Science. OK, so I wanted you to get a glass of water, so I'll just pour one out here. Hopefully, I oh, know it's... Uh... It helps if you take the top off, Dave. I understand my jug. This technology is too complicated for me. OK, I'll get a jug, a glass of water. And I'll put it on some scales. OK, Dave's got a little set of digital scales here. So, um, they're... Weighing about 135, 135.7 grams, Dave. So I'm going to stick a few fingers into the water without touching the sides. Oh, well, 170. Dave is not touching the sides of the glass. He is not touching the bottom of the glass, but he just stuck three fingers into the surface of the liquid and the scale registered 170 grams. And similarly here, I've got a, a piece of rock. If I put the rock in and don't touch the sides, it goes up to about 149 grams. But if I let it and drop it onto the ground goes up to 170. Wow. So what's going on? Okay, so when you put your fin- when you put anything in water, it feels a force called upthrust. Um, this is what make, makes boats float and, th- and um, means that the QE2 doesn't fall to the bottom of the ocean. Um, this is basically because water pressure increases as you go further down, and so the bottom of the, um, the boat feels more water pressure than the top of the boat, so it gets pushed upwards. Um, and this means that if your fingers are in the water, they're feeling an upthrust, and, that, and every act force has an equal opposite force, every action has I get an equal so reaction. the fingers go in, they're pushing water out of the way, the water is pushing back on the fingers, because that's, that's buoyancy up to yep. us, and because the water is pushing on your fingers, it has to be pushing against something else, it will push against the bottom so, of the mug? So, so the water, no, it's more that the water is pushing on your fingers upwards, so your fingers must be pushing down on the water. Sure, but that, the water is transferring that, that to the that, bottom of the... Transferred to the bottom of the um, glass. The other way of thinking about it is if you look at the water when I put my fingers into it, level the level of the water up. goes up. Yep. That means there's going to be more pressure at the bottom because there's got more water above it, so there's more pressure on the bottom on the same area. That means there's more force, so it gets more weight. Thank you, Dave. And if we were to take a Bermuda Triangle example, if you repeated that experiment but you had lots of bubbles in the water, you should register what? Um, if there was more bubbles in the water, the water's going to be less dense, which means that when you put your fingers in the way, you're going to um, push more water, less water out of the way, less weight out of the way, so you get less upthrust, so you get less force downwards, and, your hand, and you're more likely to sink. The, the reference to the Bermuda Triangle is, of course, that we think that the upwelling of gas from the seafloor saturates the seawater in some cases. Lots of seawater gets replaced with bubbles, so the density is much lower, therefore it doesn't actually exert as much upthrust on a boat and keep it floating. So we think that might be why some boats disappear in the Bermuda Triangle. But who knows? Thank you very much for that, Dave. Now, got a question for you, Diana. This is from Dolphin Burns, who says, Why is laundry lint always blue? Why is it that no matter what colour the laundry, I mean even white, the fluff that comes out of the filter system at the other end, I have two different brands in use, it's always lilac or purple or grey in colour? What's the answer? 
That's a good question. And Dr. Karl Kruzelnitsky has worked a bit on this, and he actually did win an Ig Nobel Prize uh, for his lint research. But he says that for both belly button fluff and laundry lint, it's actually an average of all the colours of your clothes. So all the stuff that comes off, even your white laundry, um, will end up being sort of slightly greyish, bluish, horrible colour. Um, and if you think about it, even if you do have a lot of black clothing, and I'm sure most people will have at least one item of black clothing, it will tend to sort of fade to grey, and those are the bits that more likely to disintegrate and fall off and become lint. It's not always blue. Um, I once washed a bathroom mat from the floor, which was very fluffy and bright red, and that was sh- shed completely. It jammed up the whole washing machine, and the lint which came out of that was definitely red. And the other slight bit of additional information that perhaps you might or might not want to know about Dr Carl's study is he actually invited people to send in their belly button fluff yeah. uh, to see what colour that was. Too. I think I think it came out pretty much the same, didn't it? So. Yeah, the, the ignoble people told him to never, ever do research like this again. <laughs> <laughs> Dave, question for you from Dane Buxbaum, who says, How should or why should a polyester sheet make a fluorescent light bulb glow? I accidentally rubbed my pillowcase, which is 100% polyester, against a mini fluorescent bulb, which is in my bedside lamp, and it glowed for a split second. I repeated this numerous times, and every time it worked, as long as I touched the contacts. Um, it's just a simple lamp from Walmart made in China. Am I being exposed to some kind of random chemical or radioactive toxin or something? No, this is perfectly normal. In fact, we did a kitchen science on this a couple of years back. Um, basically, polyesters are a polymer which is quite good at charging up. So if you rub that against your hair or against other sheets, it will tend to, as it touches the sheets, it will slowly get electrons transferred to it and or away from it. I'm not quite sure which way it with polyester, and it will slowly gain a, gain a charge. This means that if you move it near a fluorescent tube, a fluorescent tube is basically a hollow tube with some very low-pressure mercury gas in it. Some of that mercury gas will be ionised, it will have lost an electron. If you move the charged thing near that, some of those ions will move either towards or away from the charged thing, accelerate along, they'll hit other mercury atoms and knock electrons off those, and then you get the whole cascade effect, you get a little bit of electric current flowing through the tube. Um, one way, when you take it away, then it'll all flow back again. Well, that will transfer energy to the mercury atoms. That they'll, some, of the, some of that energy they'll release as ultraviolet light. This will hit the sort of white coating on the inside of the tube and that will emit visible light, which you can see. So you see this flash of light. So there's nothing radioactive about your bed. You're OK. Uh, right, I've got an email here from Joshi. says, why can't we gain immunity to the common cold? Why, indeed, I wish I knew the answer to that. It's actually just simple numbers. Uh, There are two reasons for this. One is that to be immune to something, your immune system has to see it in the first place. So you have to be infected with the thing so you then learn to neutralise it in future. Now, that would be simple if there was one virus. But, in fact, there are hundreds. If you look at the rhinovirus family, which is a cause of the common cold, around most of the year, there is about 100 of those. If you look at the enterovirus family, there's about 100 of those. There's 50 or 40 adenoviruses, many of which cause upper respiratory and eye infections. Then there are the coronaviruses, the parainfluenza viruses, the influenza viruses. And to add insult to injury, these viruses also mutate. So not only are there hundreds of them around for you to get your immune system's head around, but also they're a moving target. They're changing their molecular appearance. So even if you have learned to recognise it, there's no guarantee that you'll recognise it again the next time. And given that there are all these hundreds of viruses and the average person gets about two or three colds per year, that's three lifetimes worth of cold infections before you've actually got any chance of being immune to all of them, by which time they probably have changed. So I don't think there's really any prospect of ever being able to cure the common cold 
with the exception that what scientists, including Stephen Liggett, who is a researcher at the University of Maryland, have done, is they've sequenced genetically all of the rhinoviruses so far, and they know how they divide up into little subfamilies. And it might be that if you made a vaccine based around some members of some of those subfamilies, then every time you immunise someone against one of the subfamilies, you're protected against all the other members of that family. So you could make a vaccine, but it would have to probably be based around lots and lots of different members and probably be a bit unfeasible. Who knows? Let's hope, though, that we come up with some kind of common cold cure soon, because uh, as soon as you have children, you're into a whole different ball game. Right, uh, talking of questions that are hard to answer, let's look at this week's question of the week. Yes, this week we've been bugging plants to find the answer to this question. Hi, my name is Mike. I'm from Oregon in the United States. I realise that animals have a very sophisticated immune system, T-cells, lymph nodes, etc., but I've often wondered how plants protect themselves from bacteria and viruses. Thank you. So, if a bacterium or virus were to enter a plant, what would happen? John Carr from the Department of Plant Sciences at the University of Cambridge. Most microbes, like bacteria, fungi and viruses, can't infect a plant. But some, through evolution, have gained the ability to break down the initial barriers to infection, such as cell walls and so on, and these can cause disease. Now, in response, the plants have evolved the ability to respond to and recognize uh, particular types of pathogens. So that's why some plants have resistance genes, and this is a sort of genetic mechanism of allowing them to pass on the ability to fight off particular diseases. Now, when this occurs, you might find that the uh, cells which are initially infected with a virus or a bacteria or a fungus actually commit suicide. And this is one way of creating a kind of a scorched earth against the pathogen. But also it's a way of creating signals, lots more interesting chemicals that float out through the plant tissue. Sometimes plants will produce salicylic acid. It's the parent compound of aspirin. And it's a very, very powerful inducer of resistance. So if plants are producing salicylic acid, they're better able to fight off perhaps the first pathogen that attacked them. And remarkably, they're able to fight off an awful lot of other types of pathogen as well. So salicylic acid itself, the aspirin-like compound, can give rise to something called methyl salicylate. And this can float off to other plants and influence other plants so they become more resistant. How does that compare to our immune system? Hi, I'm Jonathan Jones. I work at the Sainsbury Laboratory in Norwich. Humans have two kinds of immune system. They've got the innate immune system, which recognize molecules that pathogens can't help making, like flagellin of bacteria, for example. And they've got the adaptive immune system, which involves antibodies. And that's what is triggered when you immunize against viruses, for example. Plants and many other sort of less sophisticated organisms have only an innate immune system. They can recognize molecules from pathogens and activate defense. The defense components involve making a sort of bleach, an active oxygen cocktail that inhibits microbes and can culminate in, in cell death. They also, uh, in plants, make a lot of antimicrobial proteins that inhibit growth of microbes. But also, many pathogens squirt proteins into plant cells to shut down that immune system and then there's another immune system involving proteins inside the plant cell that recognizes when these molecules show up inside the plant cell and activate defense. 
Plants do have a set of strategies to protect themselves against most types of nasty microbe, and one of them is producing bleach, or hydrogen peroxide, which simply kills the nasty pathogen. Also, work done by David Bolcombe at the University of Cambridge shows that plants do have an adaptive immune system too, since they can learn to recognise viral RNA, which is similar to the DNA in our own cells. On our forum, there's been an epidemic of answers. Boom. <laughs> Data bit added that many plant cell walls have reduced number of receptors to which baddies can attach themselves. Well, so Maria Guimareas said that the stomata, those are pores on the underside of the leaves that the gas goes in and out of, they can actually close themselves off when there is a bacterial onslaught, for example. And finally, Edster said that plants only have immunity when the district attorney accepts their plea bargain. Oh, dear. Well, they say that both bugs and plants come from the sea, which leads us nicely to the next question of the week. Hello all naked scientists, my name is Gary Brannigan from Salford near Manchester in the UK. My question is, while on holiday in Wales I was looking over Cardigan Bay and I was wondering what dictates the frequency of the waves? What defines how often a wave crashes into the shore? Can you help us answer question of the week? If so, drop us an email at chris at thenakedscientist.com or have a go at writing it on our forum, and that's at thenakedscientist.com forward slash forum. And it's also available as a podcast in its own right. You can get that through iTunes, look up question of the week, or from our website, nakedscientist.com forward slash Q-O-T-W. Thank you very much to Diana O'Carroll. Well, that's it for this week. We're back at the same time next week. And uh, we'll be talking about things that you can do to make your human body even better, and particularly to make it better after something's gone wrong with it. We'll be talking to scientists, for example, who have come up with a new way to make a cardiac patch that will heal up a heart that's been damaged by a heart attack. Thank you very much to our production team, Tom Simpkins, Mira Synthalingam, Ben Vowsler, and our two wonderful co-presenters, Diana O'Carroll and Dave Ansell. See you next time. The Naked Scientist podcast comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.